Uh, You can open up your copy of the Bible if you have one to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 33 this morning. So we're almost to the end of this book of the Bible. Uh, Next Sunday will be our last Sunday, at least Lord willing and what we're planning on, our last Sunday in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, And so I'm kind of sad about that. But one thing I'm looking forward to is preaching shorter passages of Scripture, and you probably are looking forward to that as well. Uh, So two weeks from now, uh, that will commence. And what we're actually going to do for the second half of this summer before we get back into the school year, uh, which we're going to go through the book of of Hebrews, starting uh, near the end of August, but we're going to take about five weeks, and we're going to do a short series on the subject of church planting. We're going to look at a few texts in particular to help us understand what we mean by that term, uh, how we go about that, why we do that, both here locally as we seek to even plant a church down in the North Manchester area the next few years, and then why we do that internationally too, why we don't just send people to do random things, but why we send people to go try to start churches uh, where there are no churches. And so uh, that will start two Sundays from now. I'm uh, very much looking forward to that and would encourage you to join us for that as we seek to renew that work as a church and make sure we're doing it God's way, that we're doing the things that God calls us to and doing them the way that God calls us to do them. Uh, but uh, one of my favorite things I get to do each and every week is what I get to do within the next hour. It's at the end of our worship services. Uh, typically, if I'm the one who has preached, I will come back up, and I'm planning to do this this morning, is speak a word of blessing over you as my church family uh, from Numbers chapter 6. It's one of the sweetest things uh, that I get to do and to see uh, your faces even as you hear that word of blessing. But blessing in and of itself as a concept is something we really don't think a whole lot about in our culture. Uh, we don't uh, give much time or attention to it. Uh, we, the closest we maybe come to thinking about blessing is when we put on social media like hashtag blessed or something like that. Or we think of a southern lady saying, oh, bless your heart or something like that. Or uh, we maybe think of what we say before a meal as a blessing when usually we're just saying a prayer, we're not actually saying a blessing. We don't think about blessing a lot. But as we come to Deuteronomy 33 today, this whole chapter is going to be a blessing, an extended blessing uh, spoken by Moses over the people of Israel as he is about to die. And as we come to the end of this book, we're in chapter 33 of 34, so we're nearing the end of of our journey through this book of the Bible. It's always good for us as we near the end of those to look back on the territory we've covered, uh, to think, where have we come? What have we learned? Uh, We do that, can do that in Deuteronomy, but I would remind us as we come to this text today, this is not nearing just the end of Deuteronomy, but it's nearing the end of a whole set of books of the Bible. Uh, many of you probably know this, that the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are like a set that we believe were written by Moses, that were compiled by him, that go together, that tell the earliest history of humanity and then of, of Israel from creation up through the death of Moses. And if you look back through that, that Deut- this chapter is nearing the end of that whole set, uh, you'll see that blessing actually is a very prominent theme throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. There's this theme of blessing that comes up again and again and again. Uh, If you have read through the early chapters of Genesis, for example, you may remember in Genesis chapter 1, God blesses the animals. 
and then God blesses Adam and Eve as he creates them. So God himself starts the blessing. He blesses people. He blesses things. Uh, after the flood in Genesis 9, when humanity's been brought back down to one man and his family, God blesses Noah. And so it continues, God blessing people. Uh, but eventually what you see happen, and what we're going to see happen today, is that God's people start to pronounce blessing on or upon or over other people. It's not just God himself directly blessing people, but God blessing people through others, through leaders, through other people among his, his nation, his people. A couple examples before we come to this one, just to make sure we know this isn't the start of blessing in the Bible. If you read through Genesis, you see there's this unusual guy, which when we go through Hebrews, we'll learn much more about him, named Melchizedek, uh, who in Genesis chapter 14, he blesses Abram. He blesses this first patriarch of Israel. And then as the generation starts to unfold past Abraham, you see these prominent examples of blessing being spoken or imparted to the generations that are coming behind them. There's the famous story that I would always learn about as a kid in Sunday school class of Jacob and Esau, where that scoundrel Jacob tricks his dad into giving the blessing to him instead of Esau. So there's this blessing to be given by this dad. Uh, he ends up giving it to the, the wrong son, he believes. Uh, so that is prominent in Genesis 27. And then there's the blessing in Genesis 49 that's most similar to what we're about to read, where this man named Jacob, who also is known as Israel, who's like the head of the, the, the nation of Israel, he has these 12 sons. And in Genesis 49, he gives these extended blessings to each of them. He, he speaks these words even on his deathbed of blessing over his sons. We also have in this set of books uh, the blessing that I speak over us as uh, a church family in Numbers chapter 6. So blessing, blessing, blessing. It happens from God to people and then from God through people to other people. And that's what we're going to see today is God blessing the nation of Israel through a man, through Moses. Uh, and so if you found Deuteronomy 33, I'm going to uh, read this long extended blessing uh, from Moses. These are literally the final words we have recorded of Moses. When we get to chapter 34 next Sunday, no more words from Moses. He's just going to go up on this mountain. God's going to speak to him, but then he's going to die. So these are the last recorded spoken words that we have of this man, Moses. And uh, what we're going to see as we read this, the first five verses are kind of this general blessing that he speaks to the nation of Israel. But then the middle of this chapter from verse 6 all the way down through verse 25 are going to be these blessings that Moses speaks over the individual tribes of Israel. And then at the end of the chapter, kind of like a sandwich, there's a general blessing, then a big specific blessing. Then at the end of the chapter is going to be a general blessing again given to the nation as a whole. So that's what you're about to hear, this long blessing, the final words of Moses that we have recorded so follow along with me, Deuteronomy chapter 33, starting at verse 1. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people all his holy ones were in his hand, so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. 
Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Then the specific blessings begin. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. And this he said of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him in to his people. With your hands contend for him, and be a help against his adversaries. And of Levi, he said, Give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they rise not again. Of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. And of Joseph, he said, blessed by the Lord be his land with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath, with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months, the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwells in the bush. May these rest on the head of Joseph, on the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. A firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox with whom he shall gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim and they are the thousands of Manasseh, And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call peoples to their mountain. There they offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. And of Gad, he said, Blessed be he who enlarges Gad. Gad crouches like a lion. He tears off arm and scalp. He chose the best of the land for himself, for there a commander's portion was reserved. And he came with the heads of the people. With Israel, he executed the justice of the Lord and his judgments for Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the lake and the south. And of Asher, he said, Most blessed of sons be Asher. Let him be the favorite of his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall your strength be. And then he returns to this general blessing. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. This is the word of the Lord. I want to walk back through this text 
Time will not allow us to get into specifics of each of these blessings. There's much that you could dive into with these things of, of bars of iron and dipping foot in oil and crouching like a lion and all these sorts of things that are stated through these blessings. We'll probably have to tend more to gener- generalities about this text, but there's much that I think we can learn. Uh, I want to start back at the beginning and just describe what is happening here, what Moses is even doing. So if you look back at verse 1, the, the way this whole chapter is framed is it says, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. So we've been seeing for quite a while that Moses is not going to be allowed to go into the land. He, he's going to be forbidden from going into Canaan. He'll be able to see it up on the mountain, but he's not able to go in. But this chapter is a recording of the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blesses the nation that he's been part of, the nation that he's been leading. So just like Jacob blessed his sons near his death, on his deathbed, Moses is doing the same thing. Even though he's not a direct descendant of Jacob, it's kind of like one of the patriarchs of sorts. As the leader of God's people, he's speaking this blessing as he nears death over these tribes of Israel. And I find it fascinating, I find it encouraging, instructive, the final words we have recorded of Moses, the one who gave the law, like who gave instruction, who's, who's known as the lawgiver, the final words we have of him aren't instruction, they aren't exhortation, they aren't warning, they aren't rebuke. Like the final words that we have recorded of this man of God is blessing, of him, him speaking blessing over the tribes of Israel, over the people of God. And you may be wondering, what does that mean when it says this is the blessing with which Moses blessed the people of Israel? What is a blessing? We, I think sometimes we confuse those, uh, confuse the idea of a blessing with prayer. Uh, we think of those almost as synonymous, that they're the same thing, saying a blessing, saying a prayer. They're not the same thing. Uh, when, when we pray, when you pray, what we are doing is we are speaking to God. Right, Like when we say, may you blah, 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 the you when we're praying is God, right? We are asking God to do things. We are thanking God for things. We're speaking to him. We're asking him things, praising him. We're thanking him, but we're speaking to God when we pray. When someone blesses another person, when they speak blessing, they are speaking not to God, but they are speaking to that person or to that group of people. The, the you, when you're saying, may you fill in the blank, is you're talking about that person. You're talking about that group of people. You are saying something to them. And what you're doing is you're in that blessing. You're expressing something for them to hear that you're expressing something you want to be true. You want to see become reality in their life, that you want to see manifest in their life. That is what a blessing is. It's you speaking to someone On behalf of God, speaking your desire over them, speaking what you want to be true in their life. And that's what Moses is doing here. He does a few other things, but that's largely what he's doing, especially with these specific blessings of the tribe of Israel. But in the beginning, these first five verses, I'll just briefly mention what he's doing with these first five verses before he hits all these different tribes. Uh, In those first five verses, what Moses is doing is actually first, and this is no surprise given that he's about to die, he's looking back in time right often when we have people come to death they're looking back upon their life and what God has done the ways he has worked the ways he's been active and Moses is doing that as he nears death 
And he's pointing them back in these first five verses to Mount Sinai and what God did there. And it is a glorious thing he described. He does it poetically, but he talks about God coming to Sinai or from Sinai, of him dawning upon them. It says, I don't have time to get into this, but he came from the ten thousands of holy ones. There's these angels who he was coming from and that in some ways even accompany him to minister to God's people there at Mount Sinai. He comes in flaming fire, with fire at his right hand. The, the mountain was surrounded. Uh, there was fire, if you remember, uh, reading in Exodus. So there's this grand display back then, 40 years prior to this, of God coming and meeting with his people. And Moses is reminding them of this. And there's two things he's reminding them that God gave there at Mount Sinai. Um, before he jumps into these specific blessings, there's two things he's reminding them that God gave, that he imparted to them at Mount Sinai. The first thing is his law. Right? That's what Deuteronomy has all been about, is this giving of the law again. And he, he's reminding them in these early verses, like at the end of verse 3, he's reminding them that they've received direction from God. Right? That, that they, uh, that he's almost like talking in the third person in verse 4. Moses is speaking and is reminding them when Moses commanded us a law. Like he, he's reminding them that they received a law. And I love how in verse 4, he says that that law is a possession for them. Like often we think of the law given by God as these like shackles that were put upon the people of Israel, this burden, this weight that was given to them. But he talks here at the end of his life as the giving of the law as a possession, as, as a good gift of God to his people to tell them how he wanted them to live, to guide them as they went into this land. He, he didn't give the law as a burden. In verse three, he started by saying, God loved his people as he's meeting them there at Sinai. He's giving them the law out of love as a, as a gift to them. Uh, but the second thing, he gave them his law, but also, and you'll see this more fleshed out, is he didn't just give them his law. In a real sense, he gave them himself, right? Like he, he says in verse five, the Lord became king. And Jeshurun is just kind of this word of endearment or affection for the, the people of Israel. He says that the Lord became king. It's not as if, God had not been ruler before that and that, that God had not been superintending everything from heaven. But he's saying in a relational sense there at Mount Sinai, God entered into relationship with us. He became our king. He became the one that we pledge allegiance to, that we follow, that whose law we uh, live out in our lives. And so he gave them, Moses is reminding them in these early verses, God gave us his law. God gave us himself. That's how he starts this word of blessing. And what a good reminder that would have been for the people of Israel. But then the bulk of this chapter, which again, we don't have time to get into the weeds of it. But the bulk of this chapter from verse 6 and down is Moses proclaiming blessing that is geared toward each of the different tribes of Israel. Uh, if you're not familiar with how that was structured, that man named Jacob, who is also known Israel, he had... It's complicated, but essentially 12 sons uh, that became tribes as time went down. Uh, as they lived in Egypt in slavery, they grew into a nation, but that was comprised of these 12 different tribes who would function, have different responsibilities, different parts of the camp that they would live in. And Moses is speaking in these verses various blessings to those different tribes, those individual tribes of Israel. Uh, and so 
these are varied in format. Some are like more predictive in nature, like as he looks to the future, like things he wants to become true of them, things that he's predicting in a sense will become true of them. Some are structured almost like miniature prayers. Some are structured like just quick words of praise to God. Uh, some are even almost like commands to these tribes. But he, he gives specific words of blessing to these individual tribes of Israel. I'm just going to mention Two details, very quick, uh, because we're going to have to skim over the top of these. But the two longest blessings were given to Levi and then to Joseph. It, those were given the most airtime as he comes to these individual blessings. The tribe of Levi starts in verse 8. That actually would have been his tribe uh, that he's speaking to. This would have been the one from among whom the priests came. The, the, his brother, Moses' brother Aaron, was a priest. And the descendants of him would be priests from this tribe of Levi. And one thing I would just note here in this, his blessing of the tribe of Levi, if you look down at verse 10, that describes some of the responsibilities that the priests would have, the things that they would do. Often we just think of priests offering sacrifices as that was almost their only work, was to minister there at the altar, like verse 10 talks about, that they'll offer incense, whole burnt offerings. Sometimes that's all we think priests would do. But the beginning of verse 10, he says that another responsibility that the priests would have, that this tribe of Levi would have, would be to teach. That they were not just to offer sacrifice, not just to keep the tabernacle and the temple up to snuff, but they were supposed to teach. Parents were supposed to teach, grandparents were supposed to teach, but this tribe had a special responsibility to make sure that God's people knew the law, that they knew what God had said, that they knew how God was calling them to live. So that's an important thing that you see is supposed to play out in the Old Testament times as now they go into Canaan, uh, but the tribe of Levi in large part fails to do that. There's not a faithful passing on, a faithful teaching of the law to the generations that come behind. And the other blessing, the longer one, is the blessing to Joseph in verses 13 down through 17. Uh, you, this blessing is actually given to two tribes that are mentioned uh, together. These sons mentioned down at the end of verse 17, Ephraim and Manasseh. They were two sons of Joseph uh, who each became kind of their own half-tribes. And uh, Moses is speaking to them, uh, asking for the Lord. This is a more traditional blessing, but asking for those tribes to be blessed by the Lord, this is verse 13, blessed by the Lord, but may his land be blessed by the Lord with choicest gifts of heaven above. Then he goes into all these just beautiful statements of blessing that he wants them to receive even from the land itself, from the, from the heavens above, from the deep that crouches beneath. May they have the choicest fruits of the sun, the rich yields of the months, the finest produce of the ancient mountains, abundance of the everlasting hills. And then I love verse 16. The beginning of it he says may they have the best gifts of the earth and its fullness so he's asking for like blessing tangibly right for fruit and 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 uh this abundance of what the earth can offer but then he says may they also have the favor of him who dwells in the bush i love that statement what i think is happening there think of who is saying this and talking about a bush and God dwelling in the bush. This is Moses who's about to die looking back, I think 40 years-ish prior 
It's when God had met him in this burning bush. Uh, and th- this, this small, insignificant thing, not the mountains, not the ocean, but just this bush, God had met with him. Before he ever used him to rescue, before he ever used him in any sort of prominence, he said, he's reminding them, God doesn't just dwell in the mountains and in the abundance of things that he gives to you, but he's willing to meet with you personally, to per- give personal favor to you, not just possessions, but to give you the favor of him who dwells in the bush, that he is willing to meet with you himself. And so these words of blessing are not just about abundance and things and houses and, and wealth. What Moses wants most, and you see it in that statement, but you see it throughout, is that God's people would know God himself, that no matter what would come uh, with their houses, with their crops, with their children, with any of these things, if they have God they are blessed. That's what Moses wants the most, is that they would have God himself, that they would have God's favor. And so Moses gives these blessings to these individual tribes. Then in verse 16, or excuse me, 26, to the end, he returns to this general blessing, a statement of blessing to the nation as a whole. And what he's doing in these last several verses, I would summarize, and he's saying two things, communicating two things with these very, the final, final words of Moses is he's reminding them, stating for them the uniqueness of God and then the uniqueness of them as God's people, right? He's he's telling them the uniqueness of God and then the uniqueness of them as God's people. So if you look how he starts that final section, verse 26, the uniqueness of God is directly stated. He says explicitly, there is none like God. There is none like God, and he wants them to never forget that. As they're about to enter into this land that's going to have people in it who worship all sorts of other gods, he wants them to remember now and forever there is no one like God. There are no other gods, and even when people imagine that there are, there are no gods like him, like our God who has saved us, who has rescued us. And I love how he unpacks that. He says metaphorically that he rides through the heavens, verse 26, right? He, he rides through the skies in his majesty. I don't think he's literally imagining God having a chariot up in the sky, right? But there's this metaphor that others may have chariots that they ride on the ground to go to different places. God rides in the sky. This is thousands of years before airplanes and things like that. He is saying God does what he wants. He superintends everything. He is over all. There is no God like him. So he says what is over them, that there's no God like him. But then he says... In verse 27, he says, underneath are the everlasting arms. That is a beautiful picture. I grew up singing uh, this song, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. This hymn it comes from this text where, where Moses is saying, yeah, God rides in the heavens. Like he, he rides in his majesty through the skies. But then underneath you, like when you fall, when you're crushed down, when you're beaten down, underneath you are the everlasting arms of God. And again, he's not imagining physical arms, but he's talking about the the provision, the protection, the security of having God underneath them, that there is safety in knowing God. There is protection, even as they go to, they're about to turn a corner and fight enemies. They're about to have threats come against them. Uh, but he wants them to know that underneath are the everlasting arms. And I would just say as a, an aside, a word of application is, what do you rest on as being underneath you? 
Like there, there's something mentally in, in our hearts that we view as safety nets for us. That, that if all else goes away, at least I have this underneath me. Like a trapeze artist, if I fall, if I can't grab this thing, there's, what is underneath me that's going to catch me? A lot of times what we view as that safety net, what's underneath us, is not the everlasting arms of God. It's the arms of my spouse or the love of my kids or the I have if all else goes right at least I have this nest egg of, of things I can fall back on this retirement account or this house uh, it, things, if things crumble financially at least I have that and we find all these other things to think of as what is underneath us uh, that we find security in knowing at least that's there those things aren't there like they can dissolve People can die. Accounts can dissolve. Economies can tank. Like the only thing that is truly underneath the people of God is the everlasting arms of God. And we must remember that, to not put our ultimate hope and trust in anything else. So he's wanting them to know there's none like God. God is unique. But then in these last verses, these final words of Moses, he wants them to know that God's people are unique, that, that there is no one like God's people. And he, he's not saying that in an arrogant way, but look down at verse 29. He says, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. So he wants them to know as they come into this land of Canaan, as they're going to be impressed by these other people, as there's going to be threats that, that come to them, as they're going to be tempted to become like other people, he wants them to know there is something different and unique about the people of God that you must not take for granted, that you must, must not just presume upon. Who is like you? I love that he says back in verse 26, this stuck out to me as I was meditating on this this week, where he says, there's none like God who rides through the heavens to your help. Like that is a beautiful statement. Like that, that God who rides on the heavens and superintends everything, can go anywhere, do everything. He rides of all the people on the earth. He rides to your help, people of Israel. Like he rides to your help. And that is true of God's people now, even who are united with him in Christ. That not just that God rules over all, that he sits in the heavens, but that he especially gives attention and care and protection and provision to his children. There is no one like the people of God. He says here in verse 29, talking about God and his unique relationship with his people he says that God is the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph those are two beautiful things packed right together that that he is your protector he the shield right he's the one who can protect you from any threat from any harm that could come to you he is the one who is a shield but he also is the one who bears the sword on your behalf who can tear down and will tear down any enemies that you have any enemies ultimately that we have especially of sin and satan and death God himself is the one who will cut them down, who has cut them down in some sense already, who will cut them down ultimately. So the people of God are uniquely cared for. But I love the thing that makes God's people most special is what is stated at the beginning of verse 27. This is a glorious, glorious statement. So they are sitting at the edge of the promised land, right? That they have been waiting for 40 years plus, like the promise had been given long before that, but they've been, they have been waiting for 40 years to finally go into the promised land, that the place that they've been waiting for so desperately. And Moses doesn't say to them, Canaan is your dwelling place. Like, just wait till you guys get there. Like, it's going to be awesome, guys. He says, the eternal God is your dwelling place. 
That is a glorious statement. He wanted them to know as they go into Canaan, as they fight and take this land, as he says, destroy, and they destroy, as they go into this land and possess it, he wants them to know that's not your home. That is not your ultimate dwelling place. And he wants them to know because he already knows they're going to mess this up, right? Like we've learned that a few chapters ago. He knows someday they're going to be sent into exile. They're going to be run over by Assyria and Babylon. They're going to be taken to these faraway places. And he wants them to hear this again when they are there. That the eternal God is your dwelling place. Even when you're not in Canaan. Even when things are not going well in your life. Even when things are terrible and awful and you're isolated. God is your dwelling place. And that never changes. That never shifts. If you've been brought into oneness with God, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter who has abandoned you. It doesn't matter how awful things have become. God, even in that darkness, is still your dwelling place. And that is good news for the soul that we must remember when everything around us tempts us to think otherwise. The eternal God is our dwelling place. So he wants them to know the uniqueness of the people of God. That God is unique. God's people are unique. I would say another practical aside. I want us, I want me, I want you as the people of God to know what a special thing it is to be part of the people of God. Who is like us? No one, like, and that's not in like some boastful way, like we are nothing special, okay, left to ourselves. I'm nothing special, you are nothing special, there is nothing glorious and wonderful about us, but God dwells among us, and we've been reconciled to God through Christ, like God is our dwelling place, that is a glorious thing, and may we, may God forgive us for displacing the priority of the people of God and looking around this room or considering whether to come or not on a Sunday or considering whether to participate with my life group or things like that and to think, oh, like, who are these? Like, I have more important things to do. You don't have more important things to do and there are not more important people on this planet than the people in this room. The people of God are unique. We've been rescued by God. We've been called out by him. We are cared for by him. And we should value and prioritize the people of God in engagement with the people of God. We shouldn't be tempted like they're gonna be tempted to look at the people of Canaan and think, I wanna spend more time with them. Like, I want to become a little more like them. We should treasure being part of the people of God, of worshiping with God's people, fellowshipping with God's people, encouraging God's people. That should be a priority in our life. Who is like us? So Moses speaks this blessing, this desire, these reminders to the people of God. But a question that was rolling around in my mind this week is, how could Moses say things like this? Like, when he, when he knew things are going to go awry, unquestionably, he knew these things are not going to go well when they get into the land. He knew they're going to disobey. He knew God is going to bring curse upon them. He knew that they're going to get sent into exile. He knew all of these things, yet he ends by speaking blessing. Like, how can he do that? Like, why would he do that? Like, how can Moses do that? How can he end by saying, your enemies will come fawning to you, you shall tread upon their backs, when he knows numerous generations from now, the exact opposite of that is going to be true. Like, how could he say that? It's because, I believe, Moses also knew that someday even beyond exile, even beyond the disobedience of the nation of Israel, he knew that God had promised to bless his people. 
Right? He had promised to even bless the nations through his people. And God had promised to send someone from the nation of Israel who would crush the head not just of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans and these earthly enemies, but who would crush the head of Satan himself, who would defeat death itself. He knew that God had promised those things. And he didn't know exactly how it's going to unfold. He didn't know exactly what it was going to look like, what the name of this person would be. We know his name is Jesus. Moses did not. But Moses knew God is going to resolve all the problems of his people. He knew that he was going to send someone to conquer all of the enemies that we have of sin, Satan, and death. And when Jesus finally arrives on the scene, thousand plus years after this, when Jesus finally arrives on the scene, Jesus actually does face the enemies of God's people. Again, not the Romans, not Caesar, not the earthly enemies of his day, but he faces the enemies of Satan. He faces the enemy of sin. He faces the enemy of death. And unlike Moses, who is about to go up on a mountain and die powerless, like Jesus actually accomplishes something. Like Moses spoke blessing, Jesus secured it, right? Like Moses pronounced it, like Jesus procured it, like he bought it, he got it for us. Like he did something that Moses could never have done, that I could never do, that you could never do. Jesus actually gained blessing for us, right? He, he Moses was a lawbreaker, right? Like Moses deserved the curse. Like every leader, Joshua, the guy who we're gonna see installed next week, sinner, deserved the curse, Every leader who follows after them, all the kings, uh, Hezekiah, who is mentioned as an example of faith, is still a sinner, deserving of curse. King David is a sinner, deserving of the curse. There is no one who could actually deliver this blessing to the people of God. They could pronounce it. They could say it. They could express it. This is my desire, is that we would live in safety, that we would have God as our dwelling place. But they couldn't do anything to actually bring it about. But Jesus could, and he did. Like, he, he lived a life of perfect obedience. Like, he lived righteously for 30-plus years of life, earning the favor of God, earning the blessing of God, gaining good credit with God the Father, right? He, he lived this life at the baptism of Jesus. That, that phrase that, that just boomed down from heaven, from the heavenly Father, is important, where he said, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Like Jesus lived unlike any person before him. He actually gained blessing. He accrued good standing with God. He earned reward from God. But when he went to the cross, what that perfect one did was that he took our guilt, our sin upon himself. He let that be counted to him. He took that upon himself. And God the Father, it wasn't the Romans who crushed it. He could have stopped the Romans. Like he could have stilled them with a single word. But who was putting him to death at the cross ultimately was God the Father. The, the one who we've wronged, the one who we deserve judgment from, was punishing Jesus in our place. He was taking the full weight of what should come down on us, what should have come down on Moses, what could have, should have come down on Joshua. Jesus was taking all of that upon himself and bearing it in our place so that we could be forgiven, so that we might not face that curse, that we could be freed of the judgment and the wrath of God. These animal sacrifices Moses had been telling them about for years now, that they've been starting to even do in, in some ways, these animal sacrifices did nothing to actually bring forgiveness. 
right? But the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross did. Like it was what could actually finally fully bring forgiveness and atonement for our sins. And the final piece of of evidence for us that Jesus actually gained the approval and the blessing of God is the fact that God raised him back up from the dead. That's why we gather on Sunday morning every single week. It's because that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago or so, God the Father didn't let his son stay dead in the grave. He raised him back up. And that's an even more audible, louder, permanent testimony to his favor over his son than even what happened at the baptism, right? He raised him up from the dead never to die again, to make him ruler of all things. He gave an inheritance of a new earth to Jesus, right? Like to show, I approve of this man. Like he lived for me even to the point of death and suffering for your place he lived perfectly i am blessing him like i reward him like i have could not would not reward any other human being god the father saying i'm rewarding him and the good news for us is that jesus shares that reward that blessing with us like he gained it for himself he could have kept it for himself But he shares it with us, this inheritance that he has, this new earth that he's going to rule in someday. He shares that with us. And the us that I mean by that is not just with every human being. He shares that reward with all of those who will turn to him in repentance and faith. All of us who will give up trying to please God and impress God and earn blessing ourselves, and who will just acknowledge, I'm guilty. Like, I deserve curse, but Jesus, I believe you gained blessing. Like, please share that with me. If you say that and if you truly mean that, he will. Like, he will give you pardon and he will give you blessing. He will share with you the reward that he has gained. Moses pronounced blessing. Jesus procured it, right? Like, Moses spoke it. Jesus secured it. Like, he actually brought it to be. He is the one who can actually wield the sword against our enemy. He is the one who can truly shield us from the wrath of God. That man is Jesus. Not Moses, not me, not your mom, not your dad. It is Jesus. And there's this fascinating scene after Jesus has been raised from the dead. I want to put this verse up on the screen for you. And then I'll I'll close with a couple quick words of application. At the end of Jesus' life, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, Luke chapter 24, verse 50 through 51. I love this. In contrast to Moses' blessing of the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 33, we have this nugget at the end of Luke, the resurrected Jesus. It says this. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. That is glorious. Uh, to, to picture, to imagine the resurrected Jesus with his disciples gathered, to raise his hands, and to, as he departs, as he's carried up into heaven, what he is speaking over them is blessing. It's not just command, it's not condemnation, it's not, uh, it's not directives, although he gave directives at the end, but his final words that Luke records is that he spoke blessing. And we don't know exactly what the content of that was. Martin Luther, of all people, speculated that it's actually the blessing that I speak over us as a church family at the end of our gatherings. We don't know, but we know Jesus left them with blessing, that that was his final words to his people. And Jesus could actually bless in fact. Like Charles Spurgeon said this, he said that Christ blesses in fact, while the greatest saints on earth and in heaven can only bless in desire. 
I love that. Like, we can express, but we ought to, I think, express blessings. Like, brother, sister, son, daughter, like, I desire this. May the Lord do this in your life. May he do this in your life. May he be this in your life. And we express that as desire, but we can't deliver that, right? Like, we can express it. We can state it. We can speak it. But only Jesus can actually deliver it. Only he can, in fact, bless. We bless in desire. And I want to encourage you in closing to actually consider how you could bless others in your life, practically speaking. There's a lot more I could say about this. But I I hope that we think more about blessing, the act of blessing, of receiving blessing, of expressing blessing as the people of God. Uh, I, I hope that a text like this changes even how you receive the blessing that I give at the end of the church service. No, it's not as, oh, this is my cue. It's time to go. If like, kids get your stuff, it's time to go. But Jesus left his disciples with a word of blessing, a reminder of the favor of God over them and his desire to be true in their life. That, it's not mandated in the Bible that we end our gatherings that way, but I think it's beautiful that we do, that we have a pastor on behalf of God speaking the blessing of God, speaking the favor of God over his people. Uh, I am debating even starting the practice, I may do it today, uh, based on what we read in Luke 24, of even just something simple like raising my hands when I I say the blessing, because that's what Jesus did. Not that I'm trying to be Jesus, but uh, a pronouncement of blessing over us as the people of God. I've seen when I pronounce that over some of us, some of you stand like in some church traditions with open hands, like to receive the blessing of God. I think that's a beautiful thing. I'm not gonna make any of you do that uh, when I speak the word uh, of blessing, but I hope that we take that seriously, that blessing actually is important. It can, in a sense, do something. Just like prayers do something, like sharing the gospel does something, like speaking blessing can actually do something. Sometimes it's the means by which the Lord actually works faith in a person's heart, restores joy in a person's heart. But expressing blessings isn't just for pastors. I would encourage any parents in the room, for example, if you have children who especially are are in the age where they are in your home, would be to consider, and I'd be glad to talk to you about this, ways that you could start this practice of, of speaking a blessing over them. A good time to do it is at the end of a day. Uh, As they're going to bed is to to speak a simple word of blessing over them. Let them actually hear. I know you pray for them, but let them hear you express to them, not just to God, but express to them what you desire to see true in their life. The things you want to see manifest in their life of godliness and faith and hope and courage, all these sorts of things. Speak blessings over your children. Grandparents in the room, I'd encourage you, consider how you could... Maybe even write words of blessing uh, that, that you could give to a grandson, a granddaughter of what you desire to be true in their life, the things that you want to see come true in your life. And as we do those things, as we give blessings, may we not just say just what I desire as if it's just random and I just get to determine what's good and healthy in their life. As we speak blessing to people, express our desire to them, we should make it biblical. I, I would encourage you to try actually to find Bible verses uh, that you could use to say May this be true in your life. May the Lord do this in your life. May he work this in your life. Like have them be biblical in nature. Blessing of God is not just something. I think sometimes when we think of hearing, receiving blessing of God, we think of it as something that we have to deserve, something that we have to have earned, something that we have to have gained. But the blessing of God here in Deuteronomy 33 
the blessing of God as I proclaim it over us as the people, the blessing of, of God as Jesus proclaimed it over his disciples as he went to heaven, wasn't spoken to deserving people, right? And it wasn't spoken to thriving people either. Like, you don't have to be deserving, you don't have to be thriving to receive the blessing of God, even in the blessing that I speak to us, Sunday by Sunday from number six, embedded in that very blessing do you hear the terms that I say? I say, one of the things I say is, may the Lord be gracious to you. <laughs> that implies you're a sinner. It implies that I'm a sinner, <laughs> as I say it, that, that we need the grace of God. That's part of the blessing that God gives us. is isn't just a reward we deserve, but it's grace we don't deserve, right? Uh, and, the, and that blessing also ends by saying, may the Lord give you peace. That implies that we don't have peace all the time. That there, we come, we receive blessings as sinners and as sufferers. Like we have guilt and then we have hardship. And we need the blessing of God to be spoken to, to address both of those things in our heart. To address our guilt, to remind us we have the grace of God through Christ. And to remind us in our suffering that we have the hope of eternal life. That, that God is our dwelling place now and will be forever. So the words of blessing that we hear, that we give, are not just for the deserving, not just for the thriving. They are for sinners and sufferers like us. Amen. I invite you to stand. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song. Thank you for listening. Father in heaven, we are thankful uh, for this text. Thank you for the example of Moses, of articulating blessing as he left these people. Uh, may we model that in our lives. May we end the days with our children with words of blessing, even if there's been words of correction and exhortation and challenge throughout the day, may we end with words of blessing. May we, with our grandchildren, with our friends, even with our brothers and sisters, may we not just pray for one another to you, but may we express the desires of our hearts to each other so that we can hear, so that we can hear from our friends, we can hear from our fellow Christians the desires of their heart that resonate with yours. And as we speak those words of blessing in our worship gathering and in the privacy of our lives, may you use those words of blessing to affect change, to restore faith, to restore joy, to restore a sense of repentance, to restore hope. God, may you use words of blessing in our life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.